Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student. I've got two medical students here with me today, and uh, let's do some introductions. Uh, let's start with the star of the show today, Rhett. Yeah, I'm Rhett Dotson, and uh, I am a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. All right, Rhett, since this is going to be about you, let's do a little bit deeper introduction to start with. How did okay. you develop this topic? How is this starting to evolve? Where is it going? Just a yeah, bit you of know, I have been interested in more uh, kind of um, news reports than anything that I've seen on on online um, about the potential use of drugs like ketamine and LSD uh, being given in microdoses along with uh, talk therapy as a treatment for PTSD. Uh, so that's kind of a, a very interesting sounding topic. Um, it is. And when Dr. Roundy asked me, well, what about psychiatry might I be interested in exploring? Uh, that popped right to head, right to mind. Um, but what we wanted to start with was a more basic overview of how do we diagnose PTSD and what are the approved and the common treatments today? Excellent. Now, Rhett, you are uh, three weeks into your first rotation. Tell me, tell me where you're going in medical school. What, what is it that uh, at the moment you're aiming for? Do you have a specialty in mind? You know, I came into medical school specifically with the idea of being a psychiatrist. Um, that has changed somewhat. Uh, and by the way, before, long before I got into this rotation. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I have, as a matter of fact, psychiatry is still right at the top of my list. Um, but somewhere along the way, I developed quite an interest in emergency medicine. Okay. Um, and I actually really loved anatomy as well. So we'll have to see if surgery is interesting. Um, so I've got a few interests and, and I've still got a little bit of time to sort that out. Anatomy and surgery sound like a great fit. Um, the interest of having something to do all the time, something interesting in front of you, emergency medicine, both, all great. They're all great, right? One of the great things about medicine is there's a job there for everybody that has all sorts of different ways to engage the brain and the body. And gosh, what a, what a wonderful field to go into. Absolutely. And Angelo. Um, I'm Angelo Garcia, and I am a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And we'll uh, do a, a little bit uh, stronger introduction for you when you present. I think next week we're going to have you tackle um, atypical depression. Atypical depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been looking forward to that. I've been thinking about that quite a bit. All right, so Rhett, let's start off with, uh, I, I mean, if, if you were going to try and focus the principles that are tested most on a shelf exam, like right off the bat, right, so that if somebody only has four minutes to listen to this podcast, okay, what are those high-yield principles that you have come across as you've been studying for your shelf exam at the end of this rotation? Okay, the, the high yield principles, first of all, you need to be able to understand when you're seeing a case of PTSD. Um, so diagnosis for boards, we could call it. Um, mm -hmm. You're gonna see a traumatic event. The traumatic event does not necessarily have to have happened directly to the victim of PTSD or the, the patient with PTSD, I should say. Um, but it would have need to, needed to have been something they directly witnessed or something that happened to a family member um, that they learned about. Uh, what you'll see then is that they are going to have, they'll meet that exposure criteria. They're also going to have to meet an intrusive criteria. So they're having dreams, memories, disassociations, hallucinations, flashbacks. 
Um, and when you begin to see that, you know that you're in the ballpark of PTSD. Uh, now I say the ballpark because there's a time element, like many of the pathologies that were tested on. Uh, and the breakdown on that is one month. So if someone's experiencing PTSD-like symptoms, um, they have that intrusive element, they're avoiding uh, anything that reminds them of the trauma, etc. all of those, those PTSD things. Um, if they were experiencing that for less than one month, if it's 29 days, uh, we're going to call that acute stress disorder. Um, and that is something that I've seen in the board material show up uh, pretty frequently. Um, it can be as short as three days, as long as a month, um, or, or just less than a month, I should say. If you're at a month or greater, uh, at that point we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. Very good. Um, let's talk a little bit more about recognition of PTSD then. You okay. mentioned a couple of the symptoms. I went through my DSM-5 in preparation for this. And the first thing I noticed was that I have viewed PTSD as an anxiety spectrum disorder for a very long time. In the DSM-5, it's not in that category. It's in a different category. Do you remember off the top of your head the name of the category? I thought it was trauma disorders. Trauma and stressor-related disorders. I had to just read it so I had it correct. Uh, again, I, I've spent many years thinking of, of PTSD as an anxiety-related disorder, and in part because some of the treatments that we use seem to be um, treatments that largely treat anxiety spectrum disorders as well, whether that's uh, psychotherapies or medications. Yeah. So within this, and PTSD is now grouped with some conditions that I would not have grouped them with, like reactive attachment disorder, right? And uh, it's sandwiched between the traditional anxiety disorders and uh, OCD spectrum disorders, right? So there's, yeah. this, there's this wedge in the book now that's cut out, and maybe it always was, and I just wasn't tracking that, or maybe that's new, I don't, I don't have any idea. So that was the first aha moment I had. Yeah, that was, that was interesting for me too, because I actually had kind of the same sense, in that if you're gonna treat something with SSRIs and CBT, um, and given the symptoms that we have, it, it seems very much like an anxiety disorder. The, the DSM-5 made, an argument as to why they were dividing those out. I'm not sure I followed all of the argument clearly, but they, they made the case that there seems to be some proximity between the chapter before, the chapter after, and there seem, maybe there's some overlap, maybe not, I don't know. But fear and the response to yeah. trauma in the past might be, I, I don't know, I, I couldn't track it at the end of the day. Okay. But worth reading. Yeah. Worth reading. Absolutely. So the diagnosis itself requires, you mentioned this, an exposure. And I think you mentioned that one of the things you'll need to be careful with, uh, one of the principles that would seem to be easily tested, is the idea that exposure doesn't mean you're the person that something happens to. It could be that you observe this. It could be that you somehow feel so emotionally proximal to the event that you almost take that trauma on yourself. So if you're brother uh, was beat up so badly at school that he had broken arms and lost two teeth and came home you know kind of um, with a cut cheek and blood streaming down uh, from his head from being you know bashed into the monkey bars uh, I don't mean to be terribly gruesome here you could as a brother or sister to that, that sibling 
also develop PTSD. Absolutely, and, and that of course could be a, a question that could easily trip you up. Um, it does seem that there's just a wide range of sensitivity to trauma, and there are people who are going to experience some of the worst possible things and come away potentially without even a diagnosis of PTSD. Uh, and then there's someone who, who maybe hears about what happened to a close relative, a loved one, uh, and that can trigger um, a long-standing PTSD. Even though there seems to be some uh, variation in who develops PTSD, and I know 10 or 15 years ago, I think I heard somebody mentioned CSF neuropeptide Y, and I still haven't heard if that ever panned out to be anything or not. I don't mm -hmm. think so, or we would have heard more about it. Um, there seems to be, even though there's this very wide range, there seem to be some kinds of factors that help prevent PTSD, and resilience was one of the things that uh, I know they were working on in the military to try and, and uh, develop among the soldiers to reduce the amount of trauma-related conditions that, that followed uh, service in the military or deployment in, in the setting of these kinds of risk factors. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm glad they're doing it. I know that there's also uh, some research I'd seen that has shown that um, there was recently, or, or up until some point in the, the near future, I'm sorry, some point uh, in the near past, uh, there was this idea that people should be debriefed as soon as possible following a traumatic event. Critical seen, incident stress debriefing, yeah, that's, yeah. boy, that's, uh, generally speaking, I think the data says, don't, exactly. stop, yeah, you're was, hurting I, people. I was interested be, to see that because I was, I, uh, you know, there were recent resources citing that, and um, including, by the way, some of your board resources, board prep resources. So for people who are prepping out there, I'd, I'd be very careful about that because that's old information. And um, if that did show up on the test, it would it would almost certainly show up as an incorrect answer at this point. Yeah, I think I think even in 2009, when, we, when I was deployed and we had some bad events, most of us knew that critical incident stress debriefing was, was not a favorable approach. And yet I think there's this sense that you have to do something and, and uh, knowing when to do something and when not to do something is truly one of the gifts of a very great physician and something that I think we're all striving to be, a great physician, somebody that knows when we should do something and when we shouldn't do something. Harder to do than it sounds. I'd imagine so. <laughs> um, the, even though we don't know who ends up having PTSD, who doesn't end up having PTSD from the same trauma, so to speak, um, we do know that there are some risk factors, and those include the dose of the trauma. The more horrific the trauma, the more likely PTSD develops. It looks like if you are injured, then you're more likely to have PTSD than if you are not injured, if you're the recipient of the violence. Um, the, the personal nature of the event, yes. so uh, rape, I think, was mentioned as being particularly damaging because of, of the... Uh, the, the profound violation of interpersonal space. Yeah. Um, witnessing atrocities, which is different than witnessing violence, seems to be one of those risk factors that I read about. If somebody dissociates after the traumatic event, that's not a good sign. Um, women seem to have more P PTSD than men, and it seems to be a little bit more durable. 
those were the kinds of things that I saw in, in the DSM-5. Yeah. I didn't see, the articles that I read didn't seem to focus on those risk factors the same way, so I don't have a lot more to add to that. Did you see risk factors beyond that? I did not. Everything I saw was in, in uh, DSM-5. I, I will just add that I did find it very interesting that, and, and I guess intuitive, but um, interesting nonetheless, that a personal trauma meaning literally involving a person. Um, so if, if you're climbing a mountain and a rock falls on you, less likely to get PTSD than if someone throws a rock down a mountain on you. Um, so I found that to be interesting. Burns seem to be uh, mentioned quite a bit in a number of the studies that I glanced through. Did you look at anything with burns? You know, I actually didn't see anything with burns. First. Um, back to the experiencing, um, having that stressor initially, death, injury, sexual violence, we've kind of reviewed some of those. Uh, what happens if somebody's watching some video that's quite traumatic? How does that work? So I actually know, or I have seen that for board purposes at least, mm -hmm. um, PTSD supposedly can't come through a media source. Now, in real life, it's always hard for me to imagine like such hard and fast roles can be 100% correct um, but that is supposedly board wise the the correct answer and that makes a lot of sense if you look at the DSM 5 they make the comment that unless there's something about that video that that electronic media that you're seeing that's directly related to your work right right then then it shouldn't it technically doesn't count towards the diagnosis of PTSD but potentially if I did see a video of someone working a similar kind of construction that I worked who had a horrific injury then potentially that could be PTSD you know I was thinking about it I know that uh, there were videos um, that were shared amongst the soldiers uh, during um, during the, uh, uh, what is it called? The It's not called the Iraq War. It's uh, not the Gulf War. Persian Gulf? Uh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, during the conflict in, in the Middle East um, that started following 2001, uh, both in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, I am aware that there were videos that were put together of soldiers who had, not, not of the soldiers who had passed away necessarily, but of the soldiers kind of um, paying, paying respect to those soldiers that had died in the conflict. Right. And, and sometimes those videos uh, or slide presentations that were put to music quite often um, seem to pull in some of the nature of the violence of, the, of, of you know, what a war conflict is. And I've wondered if it's sort of like that, sort of like what you're talking about, somebody who's in construction, who's watching videos, and, uh, even though they don't witness the trauma, it looks like the place they work, it looks like the risks that they take in yeah. that kind of construction. So I've assumed that that's what that is, yeah. but I don't know the answer to it. Okay, yeah, I, I think that we were probably on the right track there, especially when you bring in the military and, and some kind of intensely stressful environment like that. And, and I, seeing the effects of that conflict without necessarily being in that and then maybe seeing video about that conflict or some of the violence within the conflict. Yeah. Um, the, uh, this, the people that were fighting against the United States Army during that time 
um, that were planting the IEDC incendiary explosive devices and the V-bids, um, these, these explosive you know, devices that would absolutely demolish cars that drove over them. There would be various kinds of tripwires and so forth. And they would post those videos um, and they were fairly easy to see. And they were actually used in training, right? So the, um, you could see these pictures of people on the roads and you know, doing the, the work that the soldiers, the American soldiers were tasked to do. And then um, you could see these vehicles just blow up, right? And so I can imagine as well that if somebody was driving the roads in Iraq and and observed those videos, even though they didn't live that experience, they could kind of get uh, towards that as well. I can imagine a lot of scenarios, but again, I don't I don't know the answers. Right. Um, reliving experiences. So intrusive thoughts is the language that the diagnosis requires, and when you read about what it means to have intrusive thoughts, it seems to be reliving experiences. Those can come quite a few ways. What what are the ways that you read about that people could relive the experiences of the past? So you can have memories waking, right? You can have hallucinations, um, dreams. Of course, uh, is is a way that that happens. Um, it can even come out just as psychological or physiologic stress, at least as far as the DSM criteria. Mm -hmm. um, they showed that. And then, of course, disassociations, which I think is kind of a classic symptom that we tend to think of, um, where, where people will have that intrusive memory, hallucination, whatever it is, and then there's kind of a, a reaction that's disassociative. Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to talk maybe just briefly about dissociation. The best description I've heard, and apologies to the attending who taught me this, and I don't remember now. Um, I, I was I, I think it's fair to say that I'm a I, I am generally a skeptic about dissociation until I see it, and then I you know am a little better in line, and maybe it's better to say I was a skeptic until somebody kind of said, well. All right, dissociation is on a gradient or on you know, the spectrum. And tell me about your drive into work. What were the last three lights that you went through? Were they red when you got to them, or green when you got to them, or yellow when you got to them? Yeah. And I said, um, what? I think was pretty much what I said. And, and essentially, the point was made that we dissociate to some level consistently, right? We're, we're either. Um, in Dr. Roundy's lectures and our, we've got toothpicks in our eyeballs and we are checked out completely, or we are in Dr. Park's lectures and don't dare not be 100% attentive, right? And, and so how, how much you're attending to the situation is some, on some level that gradient of how tightly you are managing what's happening in your brain versus your brain is running on autopilot. And I think the other description that quite often comes up is that the event is so painful, uh, the dissociative event is so painful that it's a way of the mind protecting itself against reliving that experience. You dissociate and don't have any kind of um, awareness or cognition of what's going on. Interestingly enough, there's uh, some articles that have been published saying that dissociation might be uh, closely linked to catatonia. I don't understand that, and uh, I'm not sure I understood the articles that I read, so something that I'm watching for to see if there's developing literature over time. 
Um, I, I mentioned reliving, but I don't think reliving is, is really a fully accurate term when you talk about cognitive changes, um, changes in arousal and reactivity. So people are more likely to fight, people are more likely to get startled. And, and even though that's a change that, that, that becomes an intrusive thought, I don't know how that fits in with reliving other than, I guess, if you hear uh, the clang of some sort of metal bucket on a front-end loader dropping, and that sounds a little bit like maybe a mortar falling, maybe that starts to be reliving, even though it startles, right? there's, there's sort of a jump. Uh, the soldiers that I worked with who were deployed in Vietnam talked about um, having uh, cars backfiring, sounding a lot like... Uh, something that was dangerous to them, that sound. I, I think there is something to be said for the unique trauma, right? Every trauma is different, and that trauma creates a set of um, triggers in your mind that, that will startle you, that will pull you into the past, that will um, bring the dysphoria or the uh, emotions associated with that to the forefront. And um, avoidance is common. Well, as as you would expect, uh, if if someone can, uh, with something as simple as a clang or a, uh, the backfire of a motor vehicle, uh, can be brought back to the emotional place that they were in um, when when something so traumatic happened, uh, I can see why avoidance would be a, a huge. Um, a massive response and is of course also one of the criteria in the DSM um, is that the people with PTSD will avoid reminders of those situations or stressors that could bring out um, a traumatic reaction um, as much as possible. My sense is that avoidance is a big part of the loss of function from PTSD but I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if there's data behind that. But as people begin to avoid the environment they live in, within, it's hard to maintain work. It's hard to maintain relationships. It, it, the sense is, my sense is that people withdraw to themselves, and, and that speaks to the dysfunction of the condition. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, a couple other things, maybe, about the diagnosis. I had a, a, an attending physician at the VA in Houston. I had a, just this amazing experience at the VA in Houston. I'm, I'm convinced that some of our finest psychiatrists end up treating our soldiers that have served overseas, the United States soldiers that have served overseas. And I sincerely hope every country has that same kind of, of cadre of wonderful people. And uh, one of those very wonderful people set me down and, and he mentioned a mnemonic. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember the, the mnemonic. Um, but I th it seems like it was PTSD, and I tried to correlate it to the criteria. I think there's uh, other mnemonics that are more widespread. Stick with the ones in Sketchy. Stick with the ones in uh, First Aid for the Boards. Yeah. Stick with the ones in Amboss. Um, but a point he made is that there is a tremendous amount of substance misuse associated with PTSD. What did you come across relating to substance misuse and PTSD? Well, that's if I remember right. I saw a mnemonic, and I don't. I also don't remember what the mnemonic <laughs> was. But I remember the letter E was involved, uh, standing for ETOH. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of alcohol abuse, and, and that kind of feeds back into what we were talking about with avoidance. Um, 
if your own mind is is what you're trying to escape, um, yes, yeah, so substance use misuse is is really a, a, a strategy that people are going to turn to. Um, just to make a small note, um, like like many DSM uh, diagnostics, uh, if the substance use or misuse is a part of the PTSD symptoms, then we can't actually diagnose it as PTSD. So that's kind of a disclaimer that I've noticed is at the bottom of a lot of these DSM criteria. All right, uh, hold on, I'm looking that up right now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> boy, I hope that's really in there. <laughs> Let me see about this. Yeah, All right, on a more serious note though, uh, treatments for this condition. Tell me your experience looking at the treatments for this, right? Okay, so my experience, first of all, was through board prep materials. And what I found over and over again was SSRI and SNRI, specifically venlafaxine. Um, so that would be the pharmacotherapy. And then equally indicated, if not more so, would be cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR, which is eye movement. And I've forgotten the D and the R, but that's something to do with desensitization reprocessing. Okay, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So those would be the two therapies if if they're going to have a uh, psychotherapy as a correct answer, which very possible. Um, th those would be the two to look for. Excellent. So I want to just name those again: EMDR, eye, eye movement, movement desensitization reprocessing, and the other psychotherapy often referred to as simply CBT, but more often I see it referred to as trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. And then the, the third th uh, therapy that there's a lot of data about is prolonged exposure. Yes. And, and that makes some sort of sense as we think about some of the early biology lessons that we were taught, where we think about systems, uh, biological systems responding to their environment and yeah. um, establishing a new normal, so to speak, in the, in the changed environment. I don't, I'm not going to find this immediately, so we may put a note in this. I do see that dissociative substance symptoms must not be attributable to the physical, physiological effects of a substance. In other words, blackouts that uh. come from alcohol intoxication, or maybe if you have complex partial, partial seizures, those wouldn't count as the dissociative symptoms that we see. Um, but also the age criteria, which I think you're speaking to, the disturbance is not attributable to the physiological effects of a substance, medication, alcohol, or other medical condition. Right. In other words, um, I think once you get the trauma history, you can't necessarily say if somebody has always had um, dissociative events that the trauma now is PTSD because there were past events and, and now a trauma. Right. And in fact, the, the uh, diagnosis itself, and I think speaking to what you were saying, very specifically says at the beginning, the experiences, the intrusive thoughts have to come after the trauma. It does. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. You Thank nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> That's a good feeling. Yeah. Uh, so, so treatment, primarily, this has been a psychotherapy-treated condition. I know if you look at uh, guidelines that came out of uh, England, so the, what is it, NICE, NICE, uh, I, I see them as kind of a, hey, let's get best practices out. Um, they made recommendations that said, well, there's psychotherapies and then there's some medications. But medications are only if you really have to. In our board prep, 
it's sort of like that, right? Yeah. And yet, if you go and look at the data, um, there does seem to be not only an FDA approval, FDA indication for paroxetine, also known as Paxil, and sertraline, also known as Zoloft, in the treatment of PTSD. As those medications have gone off patent and those studies have continued, it seems like the data becomes more robust that it's very helpful. Absolutely. And, and I had the opportunity to look at a couple of meta-analyses of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy, and one of them actually kind of drew the tentative conclusion that pharmacotherapy could arguably be more effective um, than psychotherapy. Not, not to throw anyone off, uh, I, I believe when it comes to boards, if you have to choose between the two, you would choose psychotherapy, but um, that, that actually was a conclusion that I saw. One of the most interesting articles I looked at mentioned that if you assign somebody to a therapy, either medications or prolonged exposure in this case, um, the outcomes are not nearly as good as if you offer somebody, hey, which of these do you prefer? Prolonged exposure where this will happen or do you want a medication where X, Y, and Z might happen? And if you get to choose the treatment, you seem to have a lot better chance of having PTSD erased as a diagnosis. Yeah, and I, and I wonder because I did see in the literature that there is a documented hesitancy among uh, sufferers of PTSD to seek treatment um, because they've heard or know that they have a sense that the CBT involves somehow reliving that which they are trying to avoid. Um, so you wonder if maybe that plays into it somehow, uh, that, that given the opportunity to take a pill, there, there might have been, been some people who said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take that, and then of course the, the opposite. It seems to me that we've talked about really, there's two FDA approved treatments, right, medications, so technically speaking, the answer should be either sertraline or paroxetine. Correct. And yet, in some of the board prep materials, this uh, venlafaxine shows up a lot. All of the board prep materials. Yeah, it's it's just consistently over and over and over again we see venlafaxine. Um, so I, I don't know what to think of that, to be honest. So we looked it up. There's not an FDA indication for venlafaxine. Yeah. Um, we looked a little further. We looked at the number of randomized controlled trials with venlafaxine and PTSD on a PubMed search. Mm. And since 1920, there's been, what, uh, 10 or so? Yeah, yeah, very few. And there's about 20 a year on, 10 to 20 a year on average with sertraline over the same time. So dramatically more evidence, uh, or amount of data being published with sertraline. Yeah. I think we looked at uh, validation in Chinese populations, right? So there's this, this growing refinement of the data that seems to be happening with sertraline. And that isn't, doesn't seem to be the same case with with uh, venlafaxine, even though that seems to be... Yeah, not at all. I mean, it, it is ubiquitous in board prep materials. Um, my hope would be that uh, on an examination, it'll be paroxetine, it'll be sertraline, in terms of uh, if we're given specific drugs. Um, but I would just say be aware if you're board prepping. Um, venlafaxine may show up, and in the absence of an SSRI, um, that, in the absence of those two specific SRSs, yes. I think, right? Yeah, thank you for the clarification. Uh, in, in the absence of those two, that potentially um, could be the answer to go for. But um, I, I sure wish that 
the board prep kept uh, a little bit closer to hewed closer to the research and the FDA approved drugs. That, that would be nice. It seems like most of the time they do. They really do. Yeah, yeah. They, you can really... count on it typically. As soon as I heard you mention this, I actually did a Google search looking uh, and came across an Amboss quote, and it said essentially SSRIs, SNRIs, and it had in parentheses venlafaxine, right? Yeah. And and that seems to be a big red flag. Also interesting though, NHS. Um, the National Health Service in Great Britain said, hey, you know, we want you to use the psychotherapies, and if you don't use the psychotherapies, these are a reasonable set of choices. And they listed something we hadn't seen anywhere. Right. They listed mirtazapine, um, which we were very surprised to see. Um, right. It didn't show up in much of the research we'd seen. We did some uh, PubMed searches looking for randomized control trials and didn't find a lot of data on that. Uh, they also mentioned that the only two antidepressants that are approved or licensed, I think is the language that I saw from the NHS, yeah. uh, was also sertraline and paroxetine. Yeah. So, um, treatment of PTSD, then I think we can say very clearly, focus on the two SSRIs, yes. be aware of the issue around venlafaxine, focus on three treatments that are psychotherapies with trauma-focused CBT being a little bit more likely to be mentioned, EMDR and prolonged exposure being somewhat less likely to be mentioned. Uh, EMDR being the idea that as you're reprocessing the memory, having your eyes in a certain position somehow affects the neurologic, uh, the, the neurocircuitry in a way that it's easier to address trauma from the past prolonged exposure being that as we expose ourselves to something it becomes less stressful and TFCBT the idea that the way we think about our thoughts we can ultimately change our reaction and our emotions associated with those right and then with medications harder to know why exactly it, it changes the outcome but it seems to and it seems to be a robust finding that's replicated regularly now it is yeah uh, so let's go ahead and, and um, give a teaser for the future you might be talking about psychedelics, but I may ask about augmented reality kinds of approaches ah. and uh, some of the really cool stuff our recreational therapists are doing here with um, VR. I've seen them running around with the VR headsets, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, and anything that we can dream up that, that is forward look for um, in the future might pan out. We're going to just play around with that topic and see where it goes, right? Yeah, super interesting. It's, uh, of course, with um, uh, the wars that we've had stretching on for two decades now, um, and I think just a general growing awareness of how trauma affects people, uh, even very much outside the military. Uh, PTSD is, is a huge disease. Um, that, that we're looking to treat a lot better. And so I'm very interested in some of these forward-looking therapies. Last thoughts um, to close it out. Angelo, anything that maybe we should have uh, mentioned that we didn't, or any high-yield comments to add to what we've said? Um, no, other than the um, venlafaxine being, you know, one of the main drugs, mentioned in Sketchy at least, for specifically treating PTSD, um, other than that, um, just keep in mind the sertraline and the, what's it called? Not citalopram, what am I thinking? Paroxetine. Yeah, paroxetine. Yeah. Yes. Um, those are 
that's my main takeaway from this, along with the CBT and e- not ECT, um, trauma-focused CBT and prolonged exposure and EMDR. Yes. Good. Yeah. Anything else? Um, this was this may be just a straying from the topic, but I was thinking about because we were talking about how sounds like maybe fireworks or other things like that, like a clanging pot, might you know trigger back those memories um, in regards to PTSD. But I was wondering just how if smells can also trigger that as well. Oh. Absolutely. Okay. Because it, it, it probably has to do something with, you know, the neurocircuitry and how all of these memories are processed, you know, or all these pathways come into the, sub, into the um, basal ganglia and how they're processed together with sound, sight, and smell, but it's complicated. <laughs> it, it, I, I think sometimes the, the anatomist or the developmental biologists talk about the old structures of the brain. Mm-hmm. And I think in a, you might be referring to those old structures yes. where smells mm-hmm. and sounds and some of these things are processed on a very visceral level. Very close to the memories. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's something I'll have to see if a student picks up in the future. Uh, and, and maybe this is partially an explanation for why we develop these maladaptive responses to a previous trauma when that risk isn't necessarily the same at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Red, any other thoughts on closeout? Uh, no, it's a fascinating disease, one that um, we have some good treatments for, and hopefully we have even better stuff coming up. So that's uh, something that I look forward to diving into. So I'll, I'll have just a couple of other comments in addition to Angelo's reminders of the high yield things to remember for treatment. I'll also point out timelines are important three days to 30 days, 30 days and beyond, gives you the difference between acute stress and PTSD. I'll also point out that benzodiazepines are not a good choice. They, they tend to be used at times because they help with anxiety and some of the other symptoms that pop up. But generally speaking, I think the data is very much in favor of not using those or not in favor of benzodiazepines, just to be very clear. Yeah, that's what I found. Potentially even harmful over the long term. Yeah, my my sense has been if you're trying to get into therapy, benzodiazepines are probably going to inhibit your ability to learn and process the kinds of um, thinking changes that would be necessary or exposure changes that you really can't have in exposure therapy if you're numbed out to the exposure. You can't really think clearly mm-hmm. about how your thoughts are if you're, if uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is the approach. And so benzos are, are a no-go. Absolutely. Even for like breakout events as well? I... Sorry, that's just a random thought that appeared. So there was a time distantly that I looked at some recommendations. I think they were put together by Edna Foa. It's been more than a decade. And I have tracked the use of benzodiazepines, and I am fairly comfortable that I saw an article once that said they probably are harmful. And my experience has been anytime somebody has a terrible event happen, I try my hardest to say no, and those usually go well when I get away with a no. And when I can't get away with a no and I've caved into the pressure and given a benzodiazepine, it has not gone as well. Wow. Now, I don't know, that's, that's again, N of one kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That's maybe the person that was really struggling. I could sense it and it was going to be difficult anyway. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I tend to believe that the data suggesting benzodiazepines are harmful is probably 
not just crisis harmful, but across the board harmful. Not for, just for yeah, management and for breakout events. Management breakout, yeah. Okay, thanks. That's very interesting. Now, whether that's the boarding answer or not, yeah. a shelf principle or not, I don't know. But I think I the have data seen is nothing to indicate that you would ever choose a benzo uh, on yeah. a PTSD question. Yeah. That's that's my sense, and and not only on a shelf exam question, but not in real life either. I don't think you're helping your patient. Even more so. And, and that gets back to that question before, how do you know if you're truly helping your patient or not? And, mm -hmm. and the, best, the best data I've read, whether that's the best data or not, says stay away from it. But your question is nuanced, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so no benzodiazepines, timelines. Um, the illness has a lot of presentations. I think we just really kind of yeah. Brushed over the top of it, anger, aggression, withdrawn, apathy, feeling that there's no reason for anything, almost a nihilism it seems like, even though that's not the words that are used in the DSM. Right? This, this is a condition that has a very variable response. It doesn't always look just one way. Not every vet that has PTSD is angry and ready to shoot people. Yeah. Not every uh, survivor of rape, trauma, is quiet and huddled in the corner, yep. right? It's it's very, very unique and individual, the response. And I think it's important to actually keep looking at those criteria periodically so that you have a sense, okay, this person had trauma. What am I seeing here that, that explains uh, maybe this person is difficult to work with in, in a setting? And my experience has been when you understand what you know, is the person is having happen to them, you walk in that person's shoes just a little bit. That always makes it easier to recognize it's the illness that's the challenge, not the person. So if you feel like you're having a difficult time working with a person, check and figure out what the illness is and work with the illness. Okay. Very wise words. All right, guys, on that note, team out. Team, team out. out.